And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. The night of the disastrous uh, 2010 midterm elections, uh, I got a call from President Obama. The first thing he asked me was, how did Tom Perriello do? Tom Perriello was a freshman congressman from Virginia, but in one short term in Congress had impressed everyone in Washington uh, with the vibrancy of his ideas, his willingness to think differently, and his courage uh, on many issues that ultimately cost him his seat in that election. Tom has been a fellow at the Institute of Politics this spring, and that gave me a chance to sit down with him and talk to him about some deep thinking he's doing about where we need to go as a country. Tom Perriello, great to be with you. Great to have you at the Institute of Politics. You've been a wonderful fellow here this quarter. But I I owe our listeners a disclaimer right at the start, which is that um, when I, in the two years I was in Washington, you were in Congress, you were like my favorite guy. (laughs) You were my favorite guy because you were from a difficult district in Virginia for Democrats, and you were willing to take on the big things that we were working on, the Affordable Care Act, uh, uh, climate change, and some of these other issues uh, may well have cost you your tenure in Congress. But now's my chance to ask you, where the hell did you come from? Well, um, it was a great two years, and um, the program here at IOP has really been great. I appreciate being a part of it, and the students are brilliant. I encourage folks to come out and and, uh, have an experience here in uh, Hyde Park with your program. So what about uh, Ivy, Virginia? Ivy, Virginia. So, uh, yeah, I was born and raised in Charlottesville area out in the the county. Your dad was Um, an immigrant, right? uh, Son of immigrants. So he grew up— poor and in and out of poverty in Dunbar, West Virginia, outside of Charleston. A lot of Italians ended up there either for the coal mines or for the Union Carbide facility. Um, so that so, was, so you're, like your grandparents worked yeah. in the... They did not, but they that, they moved because other Italians were I there. Um, and then were in and out of different odd jobs mm-hmm. uh, growing up. Ended up working for the Public Service Commission, giving the decals to trucks that were going through uh, West Virginia and getting to see, you know, uh, his son become a, a beloved pediatrician in, in Charlottesville. Um, my dad, you know, helped build and run the, the really the only pediatric practice for a, a large That area. must have been helpful to you when you were running for public office. I, you know, when Rahm Emanuel ran for mayor of Chicago— uh, one of the reasons he won was because his father was a, a pediatrician and knew all these families on the northwest side whose babies he had delivered and care or, or had cared for, I should say. Uh, and it was like a big thing. Yeah, no. Um, that Christmas, right after I won, and as you probably recall, I lost my dad very suddenly about yes. two months into office, so I didn't know it at the time, but it was our last Christmas together. Um, I actually gave him a graph for Christmas of our overperformance in counties relative to the number of babies he had taken care of in those counties. <laughs> and needless to say, it was a very direct correlation. And since I'd come from 34% behind in the polls to win by 727 votes, it was very easy to be able to say that he hadn't just made an impact, but had made the difference. Um, And, you know, it really is, I think it speaks to 
obviously what a giant of a man he was and uh, but also in some ways how important it is to for us all to remain rooted in community and in direct services. Uh, I think that when you are providing meaningful services to people, um, they you know, people think about their family before they think about politics, right? And if you've Thank been there, yeah. And if you've been there for people and the things they need most, and certainly, you know, having a kid who's sick is right up there on the list, uh, you know, that they, they assume you get their life and care about them in a way that... This is such an important thing, you know? I mean, the most insidious thing that's happened in our politics is that the dehumanization of people that we 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 go we've gone so tribal and at the at the core we're human beings and we share a humanity and certainly if you are uh, a pediatrician um y- you know you 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 know that and people know you not as not as a democrat or a republican but as the guy who yeah, who who was there for their kid when the when the kid needed it? And my mom as well. You know, she'd been a teacher and financial advisor and some things, but she also started several of the girls' sports leagues in town because when my sisters were going through school, cheerleading was the only real option. Or basketball. I do not come from a family of tall people, uh, uh, so I'm here to attest because this is a podcast <laughs> that the. Uh, the congressman does not lie. This, thank you for yes. uh, for of all the truths to reinforce. <laughs> um, but you know, for that was a time. This is sort of the eighties, uh, basically when that the understanding of how empowering it was for girls to have access to sports, and every statistic shows that. Um, so people understanding that my mom. Who's actually now of all things in the Lacrosse Hall of Fame, having never played, uh, but having created, uh, you know, a league for people to play, and how transformative that was uh, for a lot of people, a lot of girl, young girls, to have that opportunity. So, again, you know, being able to make a difference in the community certainly uh, was a factor. Um, it also, you know, when uh, my opponent at the time, the incumbent Virgil Goode, uh, tried spent a million dollars right off the bat calling me a New York lawyer, even though I'd never practiced law in New York. Um, and having those roots and having people know my family just made it silly in a way and land, I think, you know, veer off in, in that sense. But, um, you know, it, uh, it, it was really sort of the American dream story from my, my dad's side on my mom's side, you know, is the Irish Catholic, uh, or Irish side. And, you know, he was a World War II veteran and a fireman and a public high school teacher and a coach, um, and she was a feminist before it was cool, my grandmother, Reba. Um, and so really having that sort of service tradition and that immigrant American dream. And there's tradition. another piece of this, which is Catholicism. Yes. And uh, that's been a big animating force uh, in, in the life of your family and in your, and in your public life. Uh, it has. Uh, how long's your podcast? Uh, <laughs> no, the you know I grew up in a Catholic church, which I didn't realize at the time, a Catholic community um, was a bit anomalous because of a very very progressive uh, Catholic church that was talking to us about you know nuns being um, murdered, raped, and tortured in Central America, backed you know with our government backing rightist guerrillas. And, if you weren't trying to eradicate poverty and torture, you were probably going to burn in hell in eternity. And what I later realized was that the bishop, Bishop Sullivan, based in Richmond, was by far the progressive, the most progressive bishop. So then a lot of the progressive priests moved into that diocese because they thought it was a 
place that they would be relatively safe from the hierarchy. Uh, so it wasn't really until I got to college um, that I thought, you know, you could be a, a Catholic and not be a Democrat, you know, in a way. I mean, obviously, you know, this is coming of age in the 80s and, and sort of the emergence of uh, or really ascendance of today's um, religious right, uh, which is now neither religious nor right. Um, but, you know, that identity was very important in terms of a life of service and a sense of privilege. You know, growing up in Charlottesville, two of those big influences were uh, a Catholic church that really reinforced the social justice message um, and the civil rights tradition, where, you know, Charlottesville is seen now as this blue liberal town, which itself is a bit of a charged narrative given issues of race and inequality we're, as we're, we're still struggling with. Yeah. But uh, at the time, um, you know, back in the day, Massive Resistance, which was the white supremacist movement to block desegregation, you know, shut down schools in Charlottesville. And people that I knew, elders, had lived through that. This was not in the history books. This was still, you know, there. Um, and those were almost, uh, were often led by religious leaders. So for me, faith was very much uh, something I saw in the liberationist tradition, and of course, Throughout religion, throughout history, there's been both a strong liberationist, um, liberal tradition and, and a more repressive and reactionary tradition, as with any other great force in, in humanity. So, yeah, and no, that was a big part of, you know, of my identity and has continued to be a complicated relationship with the church now. Um, one of the great joys in, in the last job I had for President Obama was serving as his special envoy for the African Great Lakes, which yes. is Congo, Burundi, Rwanda. And that's a place where the Catholic Church has been a massive force for good, yeah. not just on delivery well, you, basic and services. And you helped but, work with and mobilize those forces when you were there. Yeah, and there was tremendous courage from the priests on the ground to stand up for these human rights uh, folks who were being tortured and, and jailed. And, um, you know, by having that sort of power of the institution of the church behind it has probably prevented the country from descending into civil war, though it's still in a very fragile situation. And, you know, getting to go to meetings at the Vatican, there aren't a lot of things that give me goosebumps anymore, but I admit, you know, getting... Uh, racing down the vestibules of the Vatican and going up usually to meet with their equivalent of the Secretary of State is a, you know, uh, does give you that sort of cinematic. It does, although I wonder if you had the same reaction I did when I uh, visited the Vatican, which is the opulence of it. And you look at the walls and you see these artworks that are worth, you know, tens of millions of dollars. And my thought was, wow, that you could do a lot of good with that if you sold that painting. Yeah. Well, this is why Pope Francis is such a, an interesting and I think transformative figure, and hopefully we are only seeing the beginning of what he might do, because there's a certain appeal to all of the the sort of pomp and circumstance, but then a guilt given it's, you know, not just the opulence, but the continued structural issues, mm -hmm. particularly of, of uh, sexism, you know, and other things involved in that. Um but again, you have a sense of someone who seems to be calling the church to its best angels. But, um, you know, and there's still... Yeah, well, there seems, there's certainly an alignment with your bishop and the, uh, the, the concept of the church as a force for social justice uh, in a way that we haven't seen in, in a very long time. Well, and I think it goes back to our point about service. I think one of many things that there that have shaped Pope Francis and their books being written, you know, on this, including um, one I'm very interested to read from Ross Duthat, that's I think just come out, 
you know, he spent a lot of years really after he was kind of a rising star in Argentina and he got very close to the highest levels of power during the junta period and had to do a lot of kind of negotiating in a way that somehow maintained credibility on all sides. Um, but I, but you know, by most reports was really an experience where he wanted to go to Cordoba and, and sort of spend some time riding the bus with the poor and and Mm -hmm. in those communities. And I think grounded him in a way that is rare for someone reaching that, you know, that level of influence. Um, but even within the church, there, there are huge counter forces at play. So we will see, but no faith is, uh, and, and, and one of your early interests was environmentalism, Mm -hmm. uh, I, I read somewhere that your mo- your mother wouldn't use paper towels because you, as an eight year old, insisted that it was bad for the environment. <clears throat> uh, yeah, no, I'm sure it was a little endearing. precocious, weren't you? Yeah, no, I'm. I, I was going to go for endearing, but uh, <laughs> um, I'm not sure that's how my siblings would describe it. No, there's a lot of family. You were the youngest, so I, I'm sure that's true. <clears throat> yeah, youngest of four, and um, no, I caught that bug early um, on the environment uh, and on poverty issues. Um, and, you know, I had a very strong sense of the world not being a fair place and that I was on the right side of winning the lottery. Um, every morning, uh, I literally crossed the tracks. Um, you know, I, I went to a public school where, uh, we had, we were part of a small neighborhood of six or seven families on, uh, that had, was an old farm that got turned into a subdivision, um, all uh, white kids, the bus would pick us up um, at the end of long driveways, and then we'd cross the tracks into a neighborhood that was all African-American um, and ranged from, you know, uh, solid working class to houses that were falling apart. Um, and we went to the same schools, and it was very clear that, you know, um, teachers started talking to me about how I'd be president someday, and they weren't saying the same thing to the other kids. And I knew how uh, smart they were, and so that sense. Now, of did just they like, start the conversation, or did you start the conversation? Uh, they would. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, it's it's hard to go back, but you know, I, I fit central casting and all of the mm-hmm. race, class, and gendered components of that. And I happened to also be a smart kid who could ace tests in my sleep, kind of thing. And so, you know, that meant I got started to get put in front of crowds and was very comfortable in front of crowds, and therefore felt like a of course, I should be speaking in front of large crowds and speaking first in the classroom. Um, but partly, I think, because my parents had come from very different backgrounds, there was a sense of making sure, you know, I had all those opportunities, but had some sense that not everyone was getting them. And um, that, you know, created some obligations to do something about it. So you went to Yale and you studied environmental science. Uh, that was a focus of yours. That and humanities, yeah. Mm-hmm. I had a great experience at Yale, actually. I, particularly coming out of a very, you know, it was very conservative Charlottesville at that point, certainly culturally, um, and to be in a place that took, you know, justice seriously. But most of all, I just remember, you know, we had this. Uh, we used to call it the mellow and mediocre attitude in high school. You were supposed to kind of be too cool to care about anything or or try too hard, and that just wasn't really my style. And, you know, Yale was the kind of place where you were just supposed to do everything with gusto, you know, whether it was intramurals or debate or philosophy Mm -hmm. or politics, just, you know, love it and embrace it. And uh, that was encouraged there. And I think the campus, uh, my niece is actually going there in the fall, um, my niece and goddaughter. And, you know, I think she had the same reaction there. So I think they do a good job of, um, you know, cultivating that kind of spirit there. You uh, you took a little hiatus between college and law school to work for John Kerry uh, 
in his uh, Senate campaign in 1996, getting out environmental voters? So I spent two years working, uh, helping to run an environmental nonprofit, but I went up, um, I was seconded to the campaign just very late for the last few weeks to help do uh, some stuff around the environment. So it was kind of a campus green vote, and uh, it was a group called Center for um, a Sustainable Economy that later got collapsed into a different think tank that was really looking at market-based environmental reforms. How do we um, overhaul tax and trade structures to build sustainability? But ultimately, it was very clear to me, even though I didn't like politics that much, that everything that I cared about could only move forward if certain people won (laughs) and certain people lost. And Kerry was obviously a great um, champion on the environment. Um, He was up against Bill Weld in that race, so it was a very serious, uh, you know, Senate challenge. Um, And uh, yeah, um, that was definitely some errors along the way. I had one of those classic things where I was calling people to be, um, I think we were helping finding captains to get people to the polls or something. And, um, uh, I, I mean, I forget which town it was, but it was something like, you know, uh, are you, will you be the captain for Worcester or something like completely yes. mispronouncing the local names and just be like, you're kidding me. Right. And, uh, <laughs> so I, I may have done more harm than good, but it was a, it was a good campaign. You, what you didn't, but when I asked you about the paper towels, what is about environmentalism that, uh, attracted you at a very early age? I think it was a convergence of, you know, I was an Eagle Scout, grew up hiking in the Blue Ridge Mountains. We had a, a pond on the farm and would go fishing, and there was a strong sense of spending a lot of time in the woods and in the mountains. Um, there was a sense of this being God's creation and that we had a, a moral obligation for stewardship. Um, climate change was really, uh, our global warming at the time, um, as we understood it, was really... Um, uh, that threat was real and, and uh, uh, getting more serious. Um, so, you know, it was, and, and I'll admit, I mean, there's a certain bouginess to the issue too. And from my background, it was sort of a natural thing. And then as I became in college, more um, increasingly focused on uh, issues of racial inequality, racial justice, uh, you know, poverty and other things, then the hope was, oh, environment can be the boomerang issue. It's the one that you can, you have sort of a donor class and suburbanites interested in this that we can get at some of the issues of, say, urban design that drive right. inequality in ways that are very different than saying, let's start with the busing conversation. Well, so, there is an intersection in, in, in terms of environmental racism. Certainly. Um, you have environmental justice or environmental racism issues here in the U.S. You see them globally. Um, and, uh, you know, the issues of climate change relate to sexual violence as women in in many poor countries have to walk further and further each day to be getting either the firewood or the water that they need in incredibly vulnerable environments. So these issues can certainly reinforce each other. I think my frustration after a couple of years was that I didn't feel like the environmental movement was interested in using its um, perhaps uh, more establishment, you know, prowess to get at some of those other issues as a real priority. You went to law school, and there you really that you really plunged into human rights issues. You took a trip to Argentina with one of your professors. That apparently, from what I read, what I see was kind of a watershed event for you. Describe that. So, 
I think it was, there were a number of things going on at that point. It was this very heady moment between, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the fall of the towers when there seemed to be not just a uh, moment to take the promise of atrocity prevention and human rights, the sort of great progressive project of the 20th century was this notion of putting certain things off limits. It's one of the reasons the chemical and biological uh, weapons red line is such an interesting one is that was a progressive line. That was not a conservative line. That's something that, you know, was probably the central global progressive project of the 20th century was to say certain things uh, and genocide we're, was, was we're one beyond of the pale. Yeah. Rwanda happened when I was in college, um, uh, along with the wars in the Balkans, uh, which obviously continued uh, further on. And so there was a sense of us having failed at this great moment um, on multiple continents to live up to that idea of never again. I remember going to the Holocaust Museum when it first opened. Um, and in D.C. In D.C., mm-hmm. uh, which was when I was in college, uh, and being deeply affected by that notion of, of never again. And so, uh, you know, during law school, uh, it was a very good program that helped go to some of these areas. And the interesting thing about Argentina and Chile, as opposed to some of the experiences I then had in the Balkans and other, elsewhere, was it seemed the cycle had been broken. So it's easy for us to get fatalistic and say, oh, well, once, you know, these people have been at it forever, they've been killing each other forever, Um, it's just got to be thus. Um, But as they say in the mission, you know, thus have we made the world, thus have I made it. And I think in this case, you know, looking at the way transitional justice, which is that notion of a combination of truth commissions, uh, accountability, um, whether that's prosecution or otherwise, memorializations, um, have helped certain countries to break out of a cycle of repression and violence. And um, that, for me, was the combination of both the, the dystopic, you know, this terrible stuff's going on um, versus not. I mean, one of the founding things from my youth that we didn't talk about is, is actually Thomas Jefferson. Because Charlottesville, I grew up in the shadow of Jefferson. Everything's mm-hmm. Jefferson. And I was actually, you know, spent quite a bit of Monticello of time there. And I was always struck by the idea that this person who was so much smarter than I would ever be, more talented than I would ever be, and had arguably done more, you know, to expand the idea of liberty than most people on the And planet. he would agree with all of those things. Right, <laughs> he would. Um, had not just been, you know, this was when we were sort of changing the myth that he had been reluctantly pro-slavery or other things, and that in fact the scholarship shows later in his life he was becoming more entrenched on slavery. So how is it that this person with all of this talent uh, could be not just complicit in, but actually one of the great architects of evil? And, you know, what will people look back 200 years from now and say, how the hell did they think that was okay? How did they propagate it? So for me, that was just, that was sort of a, you know, one of those things in high school that I said, I am determined to be, you know, at least not complicit in these things people will look back on. And I think the idea of, you know, uh, crimes against humanity and genocide is certainly one of those along with extreme poverty, along with climate change. And that was where that law school experience started to get me. Well, and as, your classmates went on to uh, clerkships and uh, white shoe law firms and uh, fa- uh, great prosperity. You went to Sierra Leone. I did. Um, so at the time, you know, West Africa, Sierra Leone and West Africa was ranked as uh, the worst place on earth in the UN Human Development Index. The life expectancy was, I think, 36 years old at the time. It was about the ninth year of the war. Um 
And it certainly had that. And, and our country had managed to make it worse. Uh, the Clinton administration, through sending you know Jesse Jackson over there and some other dynamics, had actually really kind of extended the war through a combination of, you know, getting played and some other things. So here was a situation where it felt like, you know, if there was something I could do, I should do it. I just didn't know if there was anything I could do. And you opened up a legal clinic there. Well, I helped um, some Sierra Leoneans open a clinic. And, you know, I've told this story before, but it really was a turning point for me. When I went over there third year in law school, I actually had a signing bonus to go to McKinsey. I don't know if I was ever going to go, but I had it. And, um, uh, I, I was sitting on a tree with this woman who was the main civil society leader who'd risked her life like so many times. And she said, look, Tom, you got to tear up that check and come move to Sierra Leone. And I said, what the hell am I going to do here? She said, we got 12 months where we could get a peace deal. We could disarm the child soldiers and reintegrate them. We could get a truth commission. We could hold our first elections. It's literally the question of whether we'll be in perpetual war or break the cycle. And I said, that's all well and good, but you know, how can I be helpful? And she said, well, if you're standing next to me, I'm less likely to get shot. And that would be really helpful, uh, <laughs> which I thought was the best job pitch I'd ever had. Um, and sure enough, I moved there. And it you was- You don't get that at McKinsey. There you go. Yes. Um, and, you know, it was an example of sort of understanding there were ways I could use my white privilege, you know, constructively. Um, but it was an incredibly dynamic experience there. And it was a country that was completely written off by everybody as hopeless. Um, and not only did we get a peace deal, but it has never returned to war. And I remember uh, I was Skyping with um, one of the civil society folks when the Ebola crisis hit. And Sierra Leone was one of those very tragically hit by Ebola. And I remember uh, him saying to me, he was like, can you imagine what the death toll would be if we were still at war, if we had not, you know, dared to believe that peace was possible. Um, not only would it have been tens of thousands of deaths there, but would have been much harder to can, contain across the region and beyond. So as hopeless as things can seem, I think when I've been in struggles since, uh, including struggles in Congress where people were like, oh my God, that's so courageous. I was like, are you kidding me? Like there are people, you know, losing, losing re-election in Congress is not exactly a tragic outcome. Like there are people in the world that are facing, you know, real stuff. Um, and that's an important perspective. I'm not sure all of your colleagues would share that view. Well, you know, I think that uh, that might be true. I mean, one of the problems, honestly, we have in our system is that uh, retention of office is, uh, and retention of party primacy uh, is so much a driving force that actual public good uh, takes a back seat. You know, I mean, I believe most of the folks go thinking they want to do something positive and constructive, but not if it's going to cost them their seats. Oh, I can't tell you how many people who lost with me in 2010 came up to me during the lame duck session and said, well, if I knew I was going to lose, I would have voted like you. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's... First of all, people have different roles in movements and in parties, um, and everybody is going to have to figure out, you know, their own moral calculus with that. It was also true that I was... 35 years old at the time, unmarried with no kids. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, there were ways in which it was probably easier for me to be the the sort of, um, I don't know, sacrificial lamb, whatever you want to say, the person who went bold on those issues. Um, now, we also outperformed the people. We didn't just... Yeah, you know, that was the interesting them, thing. But well, no. well, well, I don't want I don't want to leap ahead in the story because I do want to talk about that fact that you 
uh, managed to do well in a district that was viewed as a very, very tough district, not by being, uh, not by muting your views, but by amplifying uh, on your views. And that's an important lesson. But I, don't, I also don't want to leave this part of your life without mentioning the fact that uh, you uh, became very, very, uh, a very important part of this uh, U- UN-mandated special court for Sierra Leone that ended up uh, in the uh, prosecution of Charles Taylor, yeah. uh, uh, the leader of Liberia, who was, uh, who was actively involved in the Civil War in Sierra Leone and was the author of a great deal of death and destruction. Yeah. No, it was, you know, it's an incredibly uh, important case study that gets almost no attention. And there were a lot of lessons I learned from it. The first was the interesting, was sort of a geopolitical point, which was this was happening about the same time as George W. Bush's disastrous regime change strategy in Iraq. And here you actually had two separate things that ended up producing regime change, one of which cost, you know, a trillion dollars, hundreds of thousands of lives and the entire stability of the Middle East. Um, We were able to get Taylor out of power without firing a single bullet, um, without troops on the ground, with the not just cover, but actual um, driver of international law and with regional support. Um, And... Ironically, Taylor actually had more connections to al-Qaeda than Saddam Hussein did. So it's easy to say, okay, but who cares in Liberia? But both because of some of the blood diamonds and timber and other things, there have been you know, some linkages there. So here you had a situation where, and I think this is something that continues to haunt progressives in a way, which is that we, um, we see so much foreign policy through the lens of the data point of Iraq that it can tend to lead to the conclusion of disengagement rather than saying, okay, wait a second, there are some things that have been human rights and international law related that we have been a part of that have actually done tremendous good. The other thing that I think I learned from that... Let me just interrupt you for one second because um, we're, we're living in a time where international institutions and international law are really being tested in part because the United States is not... Uh, standing up for those institutions and is, uh, is, is not reaffirming uh, the importance of uh, international law as policy. Uh, th- though you use the, the, the example of what was done wrong in Iraq, it's also true that the Bush administration uh, was constructive in pressuring uh, for Taylor to, to, to face prosecution. Um, Look, I think on the upside for the Bush administration, um, their engagement with Africa, particularly on PEPFAR, the um, HIV-AIDS program, yeah. was far more than anything Clinton had done and arguably more expansive than a lot of what President Obama did on the continent. Um, on the other hand, I think it is really important in my mind to remember that those of us that saw George W. Bush as kind of an existential threat to the world order were not wrong just because Trump is even worse. We have, in my mind, the reason, one of many reasons that George W. Bush's presidency was so tremendously destructive to the international order was that we had just come out of a period, so during the Cold War period, if you look at the great sort of 1945 vision of, you know, some system where we moved away from might makes right, from atrocities being okay, it was a set of principles that were honored in the breach. 
partly because it immediately fell onto a Soviet versus U.S. axis. So we came out of the Cold War with an American narrative that we had been on the side of freedom and liberty, but almost nobody else in the world saw it that way. They saw a chess mm-hmm. game between us and the Soviets where we backed democracy when it was convenient and opposed it when, when we weren't. So then there was this period, again, between the fall of the wall and the fall of the towers where it seemed like maybe all this stuff wasn't um, just hokum. Maybe there was like a real there was truth to this progressive project that we're going to take a certain set of things and make them off limits. Um, chemical and biological weapons, genocide, mm-hmm. war crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the war, the crime of aggression had, of course, always sort of moved to the side that had been part of that vision. The problem was people were just starting to say, okay, we, we have this Cold War history, and anyone who does work overseas knows that we still deal with that legacy. But then when George W. Bush chose to fight the so-called global war on terrorism in the way he did. He was the first president really to move backwards on that project by putting torture back on, um, by the neocons actively undermining the idea of getting international legitimacy behind uh, these efforts. And, you know, it basically became a new Cold War, right, where the principles around RCT strategy trumped any of the other values or other things we were putting forward. And, you know, there's a certain fool me once, you know, fool me twice quality to that that I think allowed Putin and his like to emerge. Because, you know, in understanding Putin, it's not that he hates democracy and human rights. It's that he doesn't think they're real. He thinks they were always a farce. He thinks they were just tools that we come up with. He doesn't think NGOs and civil society are a more legitimate, you know, check on Mm -hmm. democracy. He thinks that they're always— Everybody's got an angle. Right. And the way that we, that that um, President Bush in the United States chose to respond to 9/11, essentially played right into those hands. Whether it was some of the, you know, the the, the actual facts on the ground, like changing the dynamics in the Middle East, or that broader question uh, of whether this progressive project was real. And I and I don't think we've recovered. Yeah, that. I was just trying to make a very narrow point, which <laughs> is on this question of Charles Taylor. Right. That the Bush administration and was uh, constructive. They were, and they helped to create uh, the court, um, or they, they were supportive. In fact, it was the first American prosecutor since Nuremberg of an international tribunal, a guy named David Crane, uh, who mm-hmm. came out of more Republican circles and did a tremendous job there. Um, and you worked closely with him. We did. I did work closely with him. And this goes to, to the other point I was going to make, which I took away from that and, and helped me in politics too, which is to go out and listen to people. Because when I got to Sierra Leone, the conventional wisdom was, well, here culturally we don't believe in justice and prosecution. We believe in forgiveness. That's the African tradition. And I kept hearing this uh, from the Sierra Leonean elites, and I kept hearing it repeated by the Westerners who were so scared of being neocolonialist. But I literally heard it from no other Sierra Leonean. (laughs) And we went out and started to ask everyone. They're like, are you kidding? We want these guys not just prosecuted. We want them shot. And whether or not you agree with that, there was this question of like what was actually culturally desired in the place. So my, with my students, we actually designed the first public opinion poll that had ever been run in the country um, because there was no census. So they had to come up with this. Uh, brilliant methodology based on bread lines and flour delivery tested against language groups and everything. And sure enough, it came back, among other things, and showed, you know, that uh, people overwhelmingly wanted uh, Taylor and others held accountable. Um, They also showed the three groups that were 
paralyzing the negotiations. None of them had popular support. And so this was a case for all the other things we did, and some of them were a little riskier physically and otherwise, and some of them were really geeky. And the geeked out polling stuff was actually one of the things that really broke through. So should have applied those kids uh, to work in 2016. We might have gotten <clears throat> some better intelligence on the <laughs> or yeah election. Bring them over for my governor's race. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, that is just to say that like. It is incredibly important whenever you are trying to work in or help a community to make sure you're listening to that community, but also to make sure you're not just listening to the loudest and most powerful voices, um, because most of those elites were um, deeply connected to the corruption and other things that had driven it. So, of course, they loved a forgiveness strategy. Right. But again, looking back at the Latin American examples and otherwise, a willingness— to do tough accountability often presents short-term risk, uh, but is essential for reducing risk over time. Um, and again, I think, you know, I saw that in things like the healthcare debate in my district, because I do, you know, um, small business owner meetings, and the first voices were always negative, and they were pretty much always older white guys. And then people would pull me aside afterwards and be like, just to be clear, we desperately want the ACA, we really need it, it's crucial for our small business, but I just don't want the crap that's right, going to come down bureaucracy, from yeah. So, you know, I think that was something that you learn in different environments. So taking away from that, like, had we listened to that um, conventional wisdom that was a very elite-driven conventional wisdom, I don't think Sierra Leone would have broken the cycle. You you, you did return home to uh, start listening to your community. You, uh, you uh, started uh, an organization uh, called... Uh, Catholics or worked with an organization called Catholics and Alliance for the Common Good. And then you ran for Congress. And that was, as you point out, you said, how many points were you behind when you started? 34%, I think. Yeah. And you probably didn't get a whole lot of encouragement from the powers that be in Washington uh, because they have to invest in the in the most likely uh, pickups. So you were out there. Uh, what What inspired you to do it. One thing uh, that you've said is that uh, uh, Jim Webb's race for the Senate in 2006 was something that inspired you. Yeah, I mean, so first of all, it's true. Almost anyone who was anyone discouraged me from running in the race, with the exception of Tim Kaine, uh, to his credit, who didn't know me from Adam at the time. But uh, for him, it was all about conviction. He was like, if this is what you feel called to do, do it and do it with he gusto. He has some of the same sensibilities that you do he was raised in the same with the same kinds of the same fundamental principles the same catholic uh social justice notions uh, you guys must have uh, a lot in common yeah he'd also <clears throat> run in a lot of races where people had told him a that he couldn't win and b to win he should run a different way i mean kane was has typically been interested in what's the most progressive or boldest campaign I could run and get to 50% plus one, not what's the safest way to run, um, yeah. from city council to mayor. Um, he's a really interesting figure. And I, I still remember doing an event with him, I think, and Rick Boucher down in Southwest Virginia, where he Another had been, uh, uh, yeah. Um, uh, I don't know if he was a, po he was a capital defense lawyer at the time. And I think he had actually been working in a case involving, um, maybe even a police officer that had been killed. And everyone in the courthouse remembered him and loved him, despite having obviously gone in to do a job that made him very unpopular 30 years earlier mm -hmm. in, the, in the community. Um, but the web race, I think, was uh, really important, both because of the idea of someone who 
got into this with no political background into a race at the time George Allen was seen as a former Navy secretary, former Republican. Yeah. Um, and, you know, George Allen was an institution in Virginia politics. He was on a short list for a possible presidential candidate. I think he was in the high 70% approval rating. Yeah. Um, and um, so one of my frustrations at the time was a, a frequently feeling like, you know, I got to election day and voted for the lesser of two evils, that uh, it was a Democratic Party that seemed more interested in centrism and technocratic fixes than deeply principled politics. Um, and, you know, at some point, my friends, my family were like, well, why don't you shut up and do something about it? And I was someone who, from a pretty young age, had believed that, you know, movements change the world and politicians show up to cut the ribbon. And so that real change comes from the outside where people are willing to change the sense of what's possible. I now think it's a partnership. Mm -hmm. uh, you need movements to change the sense of what's possible and politicians to take an aggressive sense of what is possible. I just want to bracket that for a second because that's, you know, I thoroughly agree with you. We're here with these young people. They want to change the world. They have skepticism as to whether elective office uh, and people in elective offices are the route to go. And I always point out to them, you know, Congress is going to meet with you or without you. And they're going to make decisions yeah. that impact profoundly on those equities that you care about. Same is true with state legislatures and city councils and so on. So it's an important lesson for yeah. you can't you can't you can't live without one or the other. They have to work in concert. That's right. And, you know, someone like Senator Chris Murphy, who I was in the House with, who's great and has been such a leader on gun reform and mm -hmm. gun safety, he can't change the politics of the issue himself. Um, it's these young people that are changing completely the conversation about guns. Now, they also need someone in the Senate um, or set of people in the Senate who are willing to, to champion and push those issues. But let, let me ask you about this, because you, you represented your district. Uh, when you got elected, let, let's just to push the story forward, uh, you won this improbable victory by a point uh, in a spoiler alert. Yes, no, no but I, but I, but I, but and you, you were you, you worked on. It seemed like every sort of big cutting edge issue. You were you took a point as a freshman in the house, but you also you know you had uh, a superior rating from the NRA. Uh, and you uh, you voted uh, for an amendment, the Stupak Amendment on the ACA that would have uh, banned uh, abortion uh, under the uh, under the ACA. And this was I just was with Cecile Richards from Planned Parenthood. This Planned Parenthood almost withdrew its support for the ACA because of this. Um, Explain all of that, because now you, you, you've, you've changed your positions on those. When you ran for governor, you had to address that. Talk to me about the tension between representing your community and representing your own principles. And, and that, that is one of the great struggles of politics. Yeah. So first of all, I can say the, the times that I leaned in and went bold on my deepest principles, I have no regrets. Um, wasn't just for the ACA, but for a public option. I was pushing until the end to have right. a Medicare buy-in for 55 and at least 55 and yes. above. 
um, on the stimulus wasn't just for it, but actually wanted it to be twice as big and a you know ten year new. Which I, I associate it, myself with every one of those <laughs> things. So. Um, and in the places where I compromised for a variety of reasons, not only have I personally regretted that. Um, but I have paid a political cost, as I should, uh, including in this last race for governor. There's slightly different issues. The gun, the, the NRA thing was partly a practical decision, um, which was a combination of the fact that Pelosi, to some extent, outsmarted the NRA, which was they had a policy of um, endorsing incumbents who didn't vote against them. And so she just didn't let any votes come to the floor. Um, but a pretty strong understanding at the time that whatever position I took, the Democratic Party was unlikely to touch the gun issue, which I think was an accurate read from a practical standpoint. And still is, sadly. Well, I think it's not. I think after Newtown, the president took it on, and Dems now do take it on and want to push but it. But Congress but itself has, at this moment— True, mm. but the politics in the Democratic Party of wanting to touch yes. it changed. I think yeah. we overlearned a lesson from, from 94. And they saw what um, And that was very clear to me from the first day I ran. And there were lots of people in the Democratic leadership who said, for God's sakes, don't take a position, a bad position on guns. Now, Virginia Tech had happened, and I was meeting with those families, and those were really compelling meetings and um, you know, should have been compelling enough, uh, I think, at the time. You know, and this is the thing, like you you do start to rationalize. You say, hey, I need to be there on the big stuff that's actually going to move, right? Uh, healthcare, climate change look like it would, voted for the DREAM Act, stimulus, those sorts of things. And why am I going to take on a political hit for something that's not going to move? And, you know, do I think as a principle that's a something you have to consider when you're in office? Sure. Um, but I think your gut tells you certain ones that are right and wrong. And, and you know, that was one that I knew I was doing something that I— uh, Could you have won without it? I mean, you called the NRA the epitome of people-powered politics. My view is that they're the epitome of high-powered lobbyists, <laughs> uh, you know, funded by the gun industry and manipulating— uh, the debate, but but the, the but could you have won in your district? Could you you carried areas and did better in areas that Democrats generally were uncompetitive in? If you had exposed yourself on the gun issue, could you have been elected? Uh, you know, seven hundred and twenty-seven vote margin. Um, it's easy to think that that could have made a difference. I suppose. Um, I think that it was less. The argument today, because the politics on this have changed, are that it could significantly deflate my own base turnout for the issue. At the time, I think because the party was not moving forward on that issue, it was not something where I had very many supporters who said, I can't support this guy yes, because mm -hmm. of this. Today, uh, even in the same district, I think if you ran on that position, it the, the again, leaving aside the morality of the issue, just on the politics alone, I think the number of people for whom that matters who are even remotely considering voting for me has diminished, and the number of people who would vote for me um, but not – if I am soft on that issue, has gone up. So I think, and I think that's been because of movements. I think the Virginia Tech parents uh, in Virginia have changed that. I think the Sharon Watts of the world, uh, and now, of course, the Parkland youth have changed that. Again, just on the politics alone. I think that the, um, you know, the question of, which is a broader one in our coalition of what about middle ground positions, right? Like what if, and this is one of the things I think the NRA 
I think the NRA is probably now one of the greatest threats to the Second Amendment um, because of the politics that it's done uh, of saying you're either 100% all in, and that all in required things about not just background checks, but you know all sorts of ridiculous right. things out there, um, as opposed to being able to say, which I, I do think if I, you know, in, in, a, in a rural district, if you said, I want to take everyone's guns away, which right. obviously is not the position no people one's are asked saying to take, that. then that's a different story. If you're saying, you know, uh, universal background background checks and bump stocks, you know, anyone who's considering voting for you is uh, going to not be turned turned off for the most part on that issue. I do think there's a broader, you know, point here, which I'll try to take out of the gun context, but then bring back in it, which is, you know, elections are about motive and they're the motive of the politician. They're about authenticity, conviction, all this sort of stuff. And there's a series of things that feed into a narrative of like what makes this person tick and do they get people like me? Um, and for me running in that district, you know, there were two different ways that first race was going to play out. One was, you know, elite double Yale kid from Charlottesville who hasn't even been in the district and has been flitting around the world, doesn't get your problems, you know, thinks he can waltz in and run the race or, you know, a hometown kid called by faith to a deep life of service who believes the system isn't working and wants to go to Richmond, go to As a a strategist, I think the second one sounds preferable. Wow, man, that's why you get paid the big box. Exactly, you know, Um, trained professional. (laughs) So I think there were, you do look as a candidate for things that play against type. And I think there was clearly some sense at that point that, you know, uh, there were things that would make it more difficult to put me into a box. So there's the issue itself and how that polls um, and how that has changed over time. Same on the choice issue? Yeah, well, the choice thing was was a little different because I didn't run um, uh, on the issue of, I mean, I was pro-choice. Um, the issue with that came up actually in the context of the ACA debate. I mean, this is, you know... We don't have to get into the weeds, but... Well, the weeds were, I didn't actually make that promise to my constituents until the White House made the promise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when the White House made the promise, we're going to protect the Hyde Amendment in the bill, yes. I then went and did 25 town hall meetings and said, I will not sign a bill that doesn't meet the standard of no federal funding for abortion. So uh, if I may put that one back on you. No, no, uh, it's, I, I, I readily and, accept that. And, I mean, the, the, it was, uh, and then the Planned Parenthood and Pelosi and others backed uh, backed the White House out of that uh, and found another path. Um, well, and this, I mean, this was obviously by far the worst, not just politically worse, but personally. Um, uh, I mean, because the church, the Catholic Church was entirely dishonest in how it negotiated that. I mean, the, the lay staff was was just blunt with me that they didn't want to help Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the first major piece of social justice legislation ever not fully supported by the church that they technically supported at the end. Um, and a lot of that had to do with the technicalities uh, of the issue. But the standard, I went out and made that, I, I felt like I made that promise to my constituents once that standard had been set. And then I did feel like having promised that at you know 25 town hall meetings that um, the, the bill had to meet that standard. That came back in... Uh, frankly, bit you in the ass when you ran for governor. I mean, this was a there. You you ran, and I'm going to skip your, your your laudable service uh, for the Obama administration in the State Department, both in terms of uh, conceptualizing its strategy, 
and then uh, back in Africa where you continued to do great work that built on the work you had done uh, earlier in your life. Uh, but you came back and you, after the administration, and you decided to run for governor, and you just and you ran as a as the progressive in the race. These two issues were used to try and blunt that uh, appeal. Yeah, no, I think it was. Uh, I mean, and and Governor Northam's campaign managers talked about this. Like they felt like it would be fatal to them if we could develop a progressive versus you know centrist narrative in that primary. Um, and so they moved to the left. And they blunted your bona fides by using those issues. You still got 44% of the vote, had the support of Bernie Sanders, had the support of Elizabeth Warren. I mean, you were in many ways the progressive candidate, and you moved him. Well, you know, it's it's easy to forget where the political debate was at that point. And I got in, you know, in part because I've seen racial demagogues rise in other countries, and you don't let them get a foothold. And it was not actually clear, Democratic leadership was not clear how to handle the Trump era. Um, in fact, many people, including uh, the governor, had talked about, you know, wanting to work with him on projects. And, you know, that's that's normally not a bad impulse if you're like, okay, well, let's work across the aisle. But I felt like this was the first chance in the era of Trump to set a tone of what democratic politics needs to look like in the face of this. And that had to be fierce and absolute principled resistance in addition to a bolder, proactive, progressive platform than Democrats have offered. In other words, we need to both stop Trump and his gaslighting with live ammo attacks on vulnerable communities, but also look at the roots that gave rise to Trump in the first place, from weaponized racism to economic anxiety, and not get into a false choice between the two. Um, so I felt like there was an opportunity in the you know state that's been my home and that I love to do both of those things. Did you see the piece uh, this morning in the New York Times about this study on Trump voters and the and the point it made? I, I don't know how extraordinary the point actually is because I don't think I think it, it, it this is not a new uh, insight, but that the great motivating factor was less economic um, and more cultural and a sense on the part of these. Uh, many of these Trump voters, particularly older white men, of displacement, of cultural displacement. Uh, and I'm interested in your view of that. I mean, I think the economic displacement is part and parcel with the cultural displacement, but I'm interested in your view on that because some of uh, these, these voters there talk, what, what did Trump do in your district? Um, so Trump won the district uh, sizably. In the primary, we won by considerable margins in most of the places that Trump uh, won. So we were trying an argument simultaneously that was um, that spoke to our base um, and put Trump on defense in his areas. And we don't do that by trying to sound Republicanish or Trumpish. We do it by being bolder. Um, you know, and I would go into coal country. And the fact of the matter is, in many ways, the canary in the coal mine right now is coal itself. 
which over the last 40 years has seen coal profits go through the roof, coal production go through the roof, and coal employment go through the floor. And the change is automation. Like elites are having this conversation like automation is something coming in the future. Automation has already been a massive driver of the hollowing out of the middle class uh, and the working class over the last 20 years. It's been this triple shot of consolidation or monopoly, uh, globalization, and, and automation. And so you can go, you know, if and, and Trump voters get this. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times on the trail I would be out in Trump country and I would say, hey, I'm pissed that we lost 5.7 million manufacturing jobs. Can anyone tell me where 85% of them right. went? And every hand goes up and says computers. Yes. And then I would go to a but fundraiser that night in Alexandria and people would be like, Tom, you sound like a think tank. Those people out there are too dumb to have this conversation. I was like, they're having it. They're living this conversation. Now, that does not... We can keep two thoughts in our mind at the same time, which is the extent to which the election was absolutely about uh, white anxiety or white tribal politics. Um, you know, Coates is right. It was the single best indicator of, you know, voting patterns along with authoritarian tendencies. Um, but, you know, these two things have always gone hand in hand. Yes. In the face of economic anxiety, um, racial identity and, and racist politics is something you can play on. But I think you're, you know, what you're getting at, which is true, is, you know, identity and identity hierarchies give people meaning, uh, and they're pretty comfortable if you're on the top of those. And when you're not on the top of those anymore, um, it is uh, scary. Um, this is remembering there's a, uh, this is going to show my populist roots. There's a Tom Stoppard play called Arcadia. Uh, yes. and, uh, you know, this philosopher is going off on the scientists about like, you know, how they don't give us meaning and philosophy does. And I forget the details, but it's something like, you know, guys like clearly you're not gonna, you know, get mad at Galileo and he's like, you know, or Copernicus or whatever it is. He's like, are you kidding? I loved being at the center of the universe. Whoever <laughs> thought it was a good idea to actually put, you know, the earth outside the center of the universe and get, get rid of all that. And there is a certain amount of like, you know, within racial and gender hierarchies. It's like if part of progress means changing who's at the center of the universe, you can understand why and that's you, and, and, and in that sense, do you think the Obama presidency uh, was a precipitant to this backlash that yeah, More absolutely. Um, I mean, I know it because people were saying it as they spit on me and <laughs> kicked me during my uh, time in Congress. Um, but again, I think that, um, you know, the extent to which he as an individual um, and being the most powerful person in the world uh, representing a sh represented a shattering of that sort of Copernican yes, universe yes. For, for people. Well, he was a living up. symbol of the changing nature of our of our country in terms yeah. of the diversity of our country. But we also have to remember, I mean, I've made this parallel many times before, but I think Trump's election was to the country what Prop 187 was to California, right? You're getting... You're the anti-immigration... Uh, right, back in the 90s. In the 90s, yeah. Where you get kind of one good election for Republicans out of playing every, you know, going nuclear on the white identity politics. But it's consolidating, and we saw this in Virginia, the Latino, the AAPI community, the Muslim community, both being more political and more democratic than they've ever been. Yeah. And if the question is, is there such a thing as too racist for white people, uh, at least for a short majority of college-educated white women, the answer is yes. So We saw this mobilization in Virginia. That's right. Uh, you, you, to your credit, uh, uh, turned around, supported 
not just the governor, but you made a big effort on these legislative races. And a House of Delegates that was two to one Republican is now virtually tied. It is, though you wouldn't know it from how the Republicans are acting in the legislature. But yeah, and I think, you know, it was important. We ran in every district, which we need uh, almost every district. Uh, So you don't assign yourself... with the notion that Democrats should just concentrate on base communities and uh, walk away from communities like like yours? I guess that's a leading question. <laughs> um, from a purely tactical standpoint, our first priority should be making sure that our, that our, ba- our base feels like we have their back. Second, the swing group right now is college-educated white women. Um, so from a purely tactical standpoint, priority one, priority two— I think there are several reasons why we should also continue to reach out in these other areas. Some is tactical, which is you have to – one of the things we did in Virginia was Republicans had to spend a lot of money protecting in those areas. Um, uh, Then that was money they weren't sending to the caucus to spend in other areas. Um, I think we also need to legislate, which I'm sure we'll come back to later, Um, but – you know, if we aren't get starting to to get at least some of these folks to come around, you know, if we want to do national child care or national job guarantee, you know, the closer we are to even getting to 35, 40, 45 percent in some of those areas, the politics uh, and calculus of that changes. Well, and, let, you know, let me just stop you, because if we don't if I don't ask you about this, I'll really be remiss. You, you're you talked about bold ideas. You're spending a lot of time now thinking about what those bold ideas should be and what our strategy as a country should be to respond to the disruptions in our economy. You mentioned automation and, and, and so on. Is the Democratic Party doing enough in this regard? And what what is the direction in which it should push? I think that the voters are leading the party, uh, as often happens. And if the politics of the 1990s was about right, left, and center with the magnetic pull to the center, um, voters have rejected that spectrum for what I call bold versus old. Um, and this is changing our politics in ways that defi- that explain why we keep getting these wave elections and why the pundits keep not understanding it. Um, the bolder the ideas are now, the more popular they get. And that's because of how broken the system is for people. If you go out with how much it costs to go to college today, if you offered someone a $2,000 tuition tax credit, it doesn't make you sound nice. It makes you sound totally out of touch with the scale of what's going on. Same thing with minimum wage. If you talk about going from $14,000 a year, which is what minimum wage is, to $16,000 a year, People look at that and be like, that's not going to change fundamentally my life. But if we went to $28,000 a year minimum wage, which is fight for 15, people can say that's actually something that might start to be meaningful in changing my life. Um, And so, you know, the mistake we make is where we take an idea that has the potential to make a difference in people's lives and think cutting it in half makes it more appealing to people. It's just not true. It makes it less relevant to people. It makes people feel like they're, you're, we're not getting where they're coming from. And I think elites have been slow to catch up to this because most of us are doing pretty well. And so if the logic of the 90s was the last generation that thought their kids were going to be better off than they were, if you think things are going in the right direction, you know, little technocratic tweak politics is a bonus. 
But if you think we're going in the wrong direction, a little tweak along the way um, is more like a kick in the ass, excuse me, in the, in the rear. Podcast. Uh, podcast. Do what so, you want. Um, so I do think we need these bold ideas. Now, I think we need it not just because of politics, and you and I have talked about this, and I've been droning on about it for seven years now, um, uh, but because I think we're actually headed to a world war. I think these disruptions are not just in the United States. They're global. There are at least four major forces driving us uh, to world war. Um, and certainly the scale of economic disruption from this triple shot of uh, globalization, consolidation, and, and automation is a big one. The weaponization of race and othering. Um, modernity is not taking the edges off of that. Technology is not taking the edges off of that. Uh, climate and scarcity, particularly around water scarcity, and then the erosion of rule of law over my makes right. And, you know, it's – we see this playing out in very scary ways. Trump, you know, we've got to we, – we need to resist Trump, but we need to focus on the forces that gave rise to Trump. You know, if we get him out of office in a couple of years, maybe sooner um, – it closes Pandora's box, but it doesn't put all the things back in there, right? Like, he is not a leader. He is a rider of trends. He's not yeah. a creator of No, trends. he's a symptom. And so, you know, he did that with real estate, with bankruptcy, with reality TV, just, you know, rides these things. So we need, I mean, to me, the year we need to be focused on is 2021 and not 2020. We need to be prepared to deliver results rapidly and at scale, first and foremost, because it's what the country needs and the world needs. Secondarily, because as we've discussed, policy does not win elections, but policy results win re-election. One of the biggest differences in my mind between how Obama did it, President Obama did in the Midwest versus Secretary Clinton was the auto bailout. The fact is in 2012, we had a concrete result where we could go out into the Midwest, where we had done something bold that was controversial that had actually in a meaningful way changed people's lives. Um, the macro effects of the stimulus, particularly once we cut out all of the things that would have put people back to work, um, or most of it. Not all of it. Not all of it. It was a, we prevented a depression. It will go down as a historic not achievement. Not a bad thing. Not no. at all. Um, but, uh, but if you think about the auto bailout there, it wasn't just showing up in the Midwest. It wasn't just going to Michigan. It was having this very concrete thing to be able to talk about, and it helped that Romney had mm -hmm. you know, been against it. So policy results can matter. And so I think that the sorts of things that are happening now – as you see this scaling up of solutions, the national job guarantee that now you have Booker and Sanders coming together on. The reason I think that's interesting is, and again, I think pundits are getting it wrong. They're saying, oh my God, everyone's lurching to the left. Mm -hmm. The problem with that theory is these ideas are really popular with what they call the middle. Um, they are very main street ideas, debt-free community college, criminal justice reform, things that have gone from marginalized within the Democratic Party to net positive with mm -hmm. median voters has been incredibly rapid. Oh, we've seen a shift on healthcare as well. Exactly, mm -hmm. uh, even with Medicare for all. So to me, bold is where you actually get Booker and Sanders or what I call the, the Warner and Warren wings of the party to come together is at scale. The spectrum's not ideological anymore. There's some of that. The scale is boldness. And that's where, you know, a Mark Warner ends up being more radical than most of the people in the party because he's talking about a new capitalism. Now, whether you agree with the solutions or not, he has been out there for a few years saying that the capitalism itself is broken. That's the scale we need to be thinking about. And that's in part because the hedge fund guys and the Silicon Valley mm -hmm. guys, almost all guys, um, are, are <laughs> looking at the same thing as they look over a 20-year arc. Like, it doesn't actually work to have no purchasing power in the working and middle class, right? right? 
And that's why I tend to be anti-UBI. You and I have talked about it. It yes. feels more like the matrix. Universal where basic in- universal income. Ba- yeah, yeah, people need to work. And work is more than just income. It's also about dignity. It's about self-worth. It's about place. Right. Uh, but it's the scale of solution we need to be thinking about. I think it, you know, I personally think it's the wrong one, but I'm glad that's setting the baseline. Yeah. And then something like national job guarantee actually suddenly sounds centrist in the old spectrum, which I don't think is that relevant because it's not UBI. It's actually putting people to work. So that's the, that's the uh, I think, where the politics are going. Uh, I think the same thing is true when we start to talk about racial justice. Criminal justice reform used to be the, you know, uh, so far out there. Now it's so mainstream. It's where left and right actually come together. Exactly. But now I think we're having a much needed conversation about the racial wealth gap, the racial wealth gap and about how we tell our history. Um, And those are deeper structural issues in many ways. Um, And they're long overdue. Um, but you probably saw this study. The Guardian did a summary of it last year or last week that was really promising. Um, it was talking about this question about whether we should talk about race or not. So they were um, – I forget who done the done the study. But they basically took a set of people who uh, – white working class people who responded positively to racist dog whistle messaging. So this is specifically like mm-hmm. the group that's – Ground used, zero. Right. They used actual dog whistle messages from Republicans. They didn't make them up. Within that group, they then gave two responses. One response um, didn't talk about race and just talked about fairness and justice. The other specifically talked about uh, racial inequality and justice. This group that was that was positively impacted by racist dog whistles actually responded positively to the race-specific message and negatively to the race-neutral message. So I think that's the kind of thing where in talking to people, people have a deep sense of fairness. And as long as we are validating, which the statement did, some of the other unfairnesses in the system, people are more willing to recognize and want to do something about the about racial injustice and inequality. I, uh, I have to land the plane here. <laughs> I could talk to you for hours. And one thing I know is that uh, wherever the debate about ideas and direction and bold versus old is, is going on, that your voice is going to play uh, a big role because you're one of the really profound thinkers uh, in our public discourse. So it's such a pleasure to be with you. Grateful for you to share your time with these kids here at the Institute of Politics. I look forward to many more conversations. Thank you, David. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.